and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Lass with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's Podcast Hour and BBC Radio Manchester. Joining me today is Mike Bushell, the much-loved BBC Sports presenter on BBC Breakfast and BBC Sport. He is also a world record holder for trying over 500 sports and has been on Strictly Come Dancing. I can't wait for this conversation. It's really <laughs> interesting. So thank you for taking the time out of your day today, Mike. How are you? Oh, it's fantastic to see you. Thanks, Lucy. Yeah, no, I'm all good. Thank you. Yeah, great to be on the podcast. Thank you. So take me back to when you were a child. Did you have sort of this curiosity in what was going on around you that sort of would foreshadow you becoming a sort of a journalist? Yes, absolutely right. And I didn't realise at the time there is this uh, programme that's um, called Seven Up that's been going for decades. And that always said, give, give me a child when you're seven and I'll show you the adult. But I didn't realise at the time at all. So I was a seven-year-old and my best thing I had was a duplicator, uh, which was a, a big machine that you could make copies. It's like the forerunner to a photocopier and you can make copies. So you'd type something up, like type a story up or write a story on a bit of paper on a typewriter and then you could duplicate it several times. Thanks to that, I ended up making the, um, a little magazine or newspaper called The Daily Owl for my friends and mm. had a circulation of about eight <laughs> and then I'd have competitions, I'd try and do funny cartoons and jokes and the local village news. It was in Hertfordshire near Stevenage. And, and used to cycle around probably once every three weeks, once a month, and deliver the Daily Owl. It cost a penny wow. and a circulation of eight. It, it came to a sticky point, though, in the end, because um, I can't remember the time scale, but I kept giving away Christmas presents that I'd just got as prizes in the Daily Owl. And so I gave away my Leeds United shirt I got for Christmas. When I was about eight years old, to someone who just came to the door to collect it. So my mum started saying, can't keep giving away everything we've just given you in the daily hour. And then also I advertised, I wanted to have a nits knockout competition on the wreck. And I put posters up all around the village and, but, uh, yeah, sort of had uh, arranged it in my mind and on bits of paper. But then I didn't realise we were going away to Barnsley for the weekend. And so um, I wasn't there and about 100 people turned up and they weren't best pleased because really? nothing actually had been organised. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was getting the promotion ahead of the actual event to, to carry it away. So after that, the, the Daily Owls were the demised. And, um, but then I did, in the early years, secondary school, I did um, take a tape recorder to work on the bus. Um, if there was a fire engine, I'd chase it, that old cliche. But no, I did. I, I recorded school lessons and probably shouldn't have done, but I managed to make a documentary in the end about a day in the life of school. It was played in assembly because I was mm. fumbled. The biology teacher found the tape recorder and found that I was recording him and went to the headmaster. But actually, the headmaster was quite supportive. So well, why don't you make it into a documentary? So I did. And so it was played in front of assembly. It was only about 20 minutes long. Um, but that, that was fun. But all this time, I didn't think I ever wanted to be a journalist. No, I, I thought I'd be a farmer or something like that. And then I was very shy at secondary school. And so what happened then is that a teacher uh, persuaded to be in a, me to be in a play, Mrs. Irwin, convinced me to be in Hobson's Choice, playing the part of Willie Mossop, which I was terrified of doing. I don't want to do that at all. I said, I'll do the lighting and sit up in the lighting gown for you. And then she persuaded me and I really enjoyed it. And being in that play completely changed what I was doing at school. I then went into drama, into the arts, into English, and then went to National Youth Theatre, got into that through local youth theatres. 
and spent four summers in London in the National Youth Theatre. So that really was life changing. That that one thing of being told to be in a play. So then I wanted to go to acting, but then I came out of uh, doing a drama degree in, at King Alfred's College in Winchester uh, with no money really, a bit of debt. And so I just got a job on a local newspaper, the Hampshire Chronicle, just to tie me over until I could become an actor. But then I really enjoyed it. <laughs> that was that. And then that was it. I was into newspapers and off we were going. It all stems back to what you were like when you were seven. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what I was doing when I was seven, actually. But you have to ask your parents. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, remember, yeah. I remember when um, I was looking through in lockdown, just like tidying out some things. And we did a, a project in year six and we had to, ironically, we had to be locked down in our primary school and oh. the deadly virus. And so we had to describe it and draw it and do stuff like that. And then we had to do a recording of the news. And for some reason, oh. I thought myself, Sheila Cooler and... <laughs> 12 year old or 10 year old Lucy being like, This is Sheila Cooler with the latest news on this deadly. That's brilliant. And I'm thinking, I listen back to that and I'm thinking, Yeah, I can sort of see where where that that sort of passion for me came from. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. Oh, that's it. That's the sign. There we are. Yeah. So it all started. <laughs> um, so you went from the Hampshire Chronicle, and how did you sort of go into more broadcast? What was that? Well, yeah, that, that was quite haphazard, really. So when you work in a local newspaper, after a while, they'll, they'll say, right, you need to do your NCTJ, which I know you know about, Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> we need, you need to get your NCTJ qualifications, which is learning about law, central government, shorthand, the ethics of journalism, writing for journalism. And so they sent me away on a 10 week course. This was after about a year and a half into the job. And the idea was I did my 10 week course at Portsmouth and then came back to finish the NCTJ on working at the newspaper. I was working in Eastleigh, uh, which was part of the Hampshire Chronicle at the Eastleigh office. And so I went away on this course, which was great fun. I passed the, the, you know, the, the, the various exams in law and central government and did the 70 words a minute shorthand. I know that's not the most, but I managed to get 70 words a minute. And then through being on that course, I met all these other journalists that were in a band in East London, a rock band called Don't P- Push the River. And that I, I sort of joined them and we, then we teamed up and so I ended up badly singing in this rock band. And so we spent my weekends in East London playing at various gigs. And then after the course had finished, we sort of went back to our jobs, but then we gave up our jobs. So I didn't actually finish the uh, NCTJ on the newspaper, much to their dismay. I went off and toured Europe in this band. Um, although we got our van broken into in Amsterdam on about the third day. So it ended up being a a bit of a, a different tour in the end, mainly busking and playing in squares and a few student unions. But, it was a great experience. And so we did that for another six months and then came back eventually because the van ended up broken beyond did repair. You have, did you have an album or like a single? No, we did. It was, it was all cassettes then. No, we didn't have a recording contract. I think some, some chap came to us once that we were playing in this gig in Camden. Sorry, not Camden, Canning Town in London and said, oh, yes, after the tour, he'd signed, he'd signed us up. Lipstick Records. I think he produced the Ramones in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But it was the, before the days when you could really... It was the early 90s, you couldn't really, unless you got a recording deal, you couldn't do your own CDs, your own. We could do it on tape, little cassettes. So no, they've got cassettes up in the loft, but that's about it. We didn't release any singles as such, or it was more of a touring thing. Um, but then the, on the tour as well, the guitarist ran off with the drummer. And so the, span, the band sort of split up and I ended up with the main guitarist as well in Spain, working in a restaurant. 
and then came back and then had to get another job went back to live at home with my parents in Yorkshire and then um, got a job on the Tarby Telegraph so I went back to newspapers um, went off to the Berlin Wall so as that was coming down with Nigel the guitarist and I wrote an article of that for Derby even though Derby's a long way from Berlin uh, I didn't last long at the Derby paper it, it was um, a very tabloidy paper there's quite an atmosphere there and yeah we didn't suit each other so I ended up uh, leaving there and going to work on a, another paper, the Windsor Observer, which was a great paper in Slough and Windsor, covering Slough and Windsor. We also launched a new um, title in Maidenhead. And that was only there six weeks. And then it all stems back to a, a press trip when I was working for the Hampshire Chronicle years before, when there was a tri press trip to Guernsey. And we're all, it was like the tourism thing to Guernsey, how you could get there from Southampton and Winchester. And we're all at the restaurant and I love the sea in France and I just ran in the sea. I just, I just said to everybody at the restaurant, do you mind if I go for a quick dip? <laughs> so I just stripped off into my boxes that I had on and ran into the sea, came out and sat down for my dessert, <laughs> which was I suppose a bit unusual. I just loved the sea, I had the sea calling me. And then years later, I went for the interview. There was a Radio Solent interview coming up and Henry Elf was on the board and he remembered that, he remembered the sea. And to be fair at that point, their main interest was the band going into the Berlin Wall and running in the sea. Yeah. Um, I suppose those are things that maybe seem a bit quirky, but I don't know, different, maybe bad, <laughs> a bit strange. But anyway, yeah, they, they, they took me on, they said they saw potential. So that's how I ended up working at Radio Solent. So that, that was it, the beginning of the, the BBC journey. But it was for newspapers, but I didn't actually finish the NCTJ to my shame. And my apologies to the Hampshire Chronicle. I have been back there since. And we're all good it's, friends. Not stopped, <laughs> it's not stopped you, not having having a hundred words a minute or anything. Um, no. So why did you prefer broadcast to print? What was the, was it sort of the fast paced nature of broadcast or how, what was Yeah, I, I loved, I loved print and I loved working um, on, the, on the, the Hampshire Chronicle and the Windsor Observer. You get so many opportunities with print and it's brilliant training for writing. It really does help you hone your writing skills. Even if, you know, I used to review plays I used to literally go to dog shows. I'd go to the council court cases. There was one court case in Southampton. Portsmouth fans have been fighting. It went on for weeks. So you learn all the skills on the job, if you were. Working for newspapers is a brilliant, brilliant experience and a brilliant time. And I'd have probably gone on working on the, the Windsor and Snow Observer because I say there's a close-knit team. We'd launched our own paper. How exciting was that? We're launching our own paper. Um, it was brilliant. You get to do so much, cover so many things, and I love the writing. But then there just I didn't know about the broadcasting. The, the radio center opportunity came up. I thought I'd go for it. And then I just loved it. I suppose it harked back to the days when I took, took a tape recorder into school mm. and did the commentary then. Um, I think it really helps. It certainly did in those days. And I was told at my radio solar board, BBC board, it really helped that I did have a lot of newspaper experience because everyone says that uh, brought, um, print journalists are usually better writers than broadcasters um, at first broadcasting writing you, you, because it's shorting a lot about vision it's more how you speak isn't it mm. um and so you can get away with a bit more whereas print journalism had to be so precise so tight yeah um and so yeah but i loved then the broadcasting and, and didn't really look back i mean you i was still writing bulletins i suppose to read out on radio solent and you're still writing scripts so i've always carried the, the print journalism the writing for newspapers skills and experience with me but just used it in a different way and yeah. then yeah and then just gradually through radio solent went to the isle of wight and got a few tv opportunities and that's another 
ball game altogether. But it all stems back to the same thing that telling a story is just a different format. Yeah, I love that. And how did you then, did you choose to go into sport or were you sort of headhunted for sport? How did you become sort of sports presenter? Yeah, well, what it was, um, was that I was doing the Isle of Wight and I love that, doing all the news reports, very quirky news reports. There's a great patch to cover. I got more pieces on the national news as well, working on the Isle of Wight. There were so many unusual stories. And then I was posted to Reading. And after sort of five or six years of that, I probably felt I was maybe doing the same kind of stories again and again and I thought well ideally I'd like to specialize in either um, environment or sport but there was um, a lot of people ahead of me in sport and so I ended up getting posted to do the sort of more unusual sports I guess by by BBC South and also I did this weekly column called What's On which was an entertainment guide which I really loved doing and gradually got away slightly from the hard news and started doing this you know weekly look at theatres and ended up being in panto and bound and gagged and custard by by Keith Chegwin for a piece it was all these fun experiences and I love doing all those and also started to reflect the sports that maybe didn't get the limelight uh the sporting stars that weren't really mainstream and didn't get the the usual spotlight focus on them after a weekend and yet they had incredible achievements and so I'd be, be focusing on that more and more of just finding these stories getting people to email them in or text or ring me up at the office because it was before the days really of the internet and um, the mobile phone the phones were coming in but they were very big and bulky and so started doing that and loved it started um you know went out to to kenya to follow richard burns who was from reading in the safari rally uh, at the time and that was fantastic just filming a piece myself on my own camera and though gradually those sort of pieces took off they went down well and so i then became just not pigeonhole but then more and more used for sport mm. before they ended up using me as a sports presenter now uh, you know over the years this was in BBC South um, until about 97 when I made the jump to go up to London to the BBC News Channel when it was first launched but I did go back to Southampton um, because it was early days of the News Channel and a great opportunity came up at Southampton to do a for the, for the millennium a two um, a 40 part history series which was again a little bit different away from the norm, away from the environment, away from sport, but it was just fascinating to do. Yeah, and then obviously BBC Breakfast moved up north to Media City. Yeah. What was that like? Because um, I presume that it was, was it It was at Broadcasting House beforehand? Yes, so, so, so what it was, what was in, yeah. So in 2001, having gone back to Southampton, I went back to BBC Sports News, with a great guy called Nick Dixon in charge, and he got me back, because I still kept in friends with all the people from when I was there before. But then I was there to stay. We were at, um, first of all, at TV Centre, then it moved to Broadcasting House. Sorry, the other way around. It was Broadcasting House, then TV Centre. Um, and th- those were great years. Um, and started doing more and more breakfast. Started doing the Saturday mornings. And then in 2006, um, they said, we need to find a way to spruce up the sport. It's too mainstream. It's too narrow. And then I suggested the idea of doing different unusual sports to try and bridge the gap between the the non-sport audience and the sporting audience and that took off in 2006 I thought would probably last for six weeks but now 600 pieces later all these years later still sort of going it's adapted slightly but it's still going but yes you the question about moving north was, was an intriguing one at the time because family were going up some were secondary school one daughter was still primary one was still well, potentially when it was announced, nursery. So it meant uprooting everybody. And that happened to me when I was 11. I was uprooted from Hertfordshire. My dad got a job in Yorkshire and up to Harrogate. And I cried and cried and cried for months at the time, but it actually 
worked out well. But um, yeah, it was a big dilemma. We had to decide, I think it was in about 2009. And I remember thinking, I can't really do it because I can't really work up there if I live down here, my family are all down here. Um, and so, but BBC were brilliant. That's what changed it. They said, well, look, we can make it work for you. We can come up for a, a bit, do your shifts and then have a few days at home. And that's the way it's worked. And it was brilliant. Because obviously filming as well could be anywhere in the country. Yeah. And, and they also decided to make the filming part of my weekly routine, whereas before they used to be add-on days. Right. So that made a big difference. And so it, it worked and it worked brilliant. So glad I did because I was on the verge of saying, oh, no. But to have left the most brilliant job on breakfast just because of geography, which didn't actually, it's, only, it's not like going to the other side of the world. It's only two hours on the train from London or yeah. from my house, three and, a, three and a bit hours in the car. It's, it's nothing really. And then you can stay up there as a Brit and to be part of it. It's been the most fantastic thing for breakfast, for the whole sports news up there, for the, to be part of that hub. It's been yeah. revolutionary. I think it's, it's a fantastic experience and I love it more than ever. Um, there's much more opportunities. Uh, yeah, it, the world's up, BBC World Sports up there. It, and the studios are fantastic. To be part of that hub and that environment is special. Yeah, because the whole of the sport is moved up as well, hasn't it? So in a yeah. sense, your whole hub of breakfast yes. and BBC Sport is all in the same building for you. That Absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, it's brought us a lot closer um, as departments and as one team than it was ever in London. Um, and I, I mean that in terms of work, but also socially, because people tend to be a lot closer geographically, yeah. um, more social life in the sort of Manchester, Media City, Salford hub, if you like. London's a lot bigger, a lot more spread out. But yeah, definitely because of the way it's set up and is designed brilliantly by the likes of Peter Salmon, it's, it's brought the whole department sport much closer together. There's less repetition. It's It's really streamlined and everyone's much more involved and it's brilliant the facilities are fantastic the, you know the new touch screen the virtual studios they've been using during the euros over at dock house which is the next building for the match of the day team absolutely brilliant and were you always interested in sport as a child did you was it sort of did you always know like what football yeah. games were on and what <laughs> and that was that kind of your niche oh absolutely and another thing that i did when i was seven or eight growing up in hertfordshire was FA Cup vinyl day. I, I used to think it was so important that I broadcast the score on the window. Again, it was before the days of any technology. So I'd write it on a bit of paper on FA Cup vinyl day and stick it to the window. The trouble is we lived in a cul-de-sac. So <laughs> it was only literally the odd cat passing by during the actual match. Um, and so not many people would have seen that, but I thought it was very important when there was a goal in the FA Cup final, that I have to change my sheet and broadcast it to the, out the window to the close to yeah. the passing cat and write down any score as the time and all the information. Uh, absolutely. I used to commentate all the time on Subutio, playing and recording the commentaries. Sport was a massive part of my life. I used to follow the Olympics. I used to run for Hertfordshire. Cross-country running was my thing that I was quite good at. Uh, so, yeah, it was a massive part of my life. I was never that good at it, really, apart from the running. I was never that good at football or cricket. I was a bit small, a bit weedy left on the wing sort of thing but I always had a passion for it and it was great when I eventually did manage to get back into it as a profession and to follow it properly at BBC South first of all and then on BBC yeah. Sports News and then BBC Breakfast. And so you were touching on how every Saturday morning you try your hand at a different sport and you were saying how it was to bridge the gap between people who enjoy sport and maybe who don't participate in it. What has been your favourite sport to try or your favourite memory of a sport? And which oh. is the hardest sport? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. Oh, there's so many pieces and so many. I mean, they're not, not stick in my mind. 
it's, I suppose the ones that really impact me are the more, I suppose, unusual ones that have changed people's lives. So the town of Clonorted Wells in Wales had real depression in the 80s. Nobody, the job unemployment rate was going sky high. It used to be a, a spa town. They lost all that. And so it was really struggling financially. And they all, so they, they came up just literally a, a chat in a pub. First of all, with the man versus horse race, which is still going strong, apart from during lockdown at the moment, where horses race people across 22 miles of Welsh hills. Mm. Uh, and that's become a world famous event. Then they said, what else have we got? And someone said, we've got the bog. The bog? Yes, it's peat bog up on the, the hills above the town of Clonton Wells. And so the next day, one local farmer jumped into it, put his flippers on, put his goggles on and snorkeled up. And they came up with the idea of bog snorkeling. And you may think this is a bit of a joke, but it has become huge worldwide. Uh, the world famous bog snorkeling championship. They also have the world alternative games there every four years. Uh, just the bog snorkeling alone, they have the bog snorkeling triathlon. They've even got a bog now you can cycle through. So you've got a little snorkel and they measure it so that it's, you're going to be able to breathe. And they put weights on the bike and you have to snorkel through this bog. And there's the triathlon that involves running, bog snorkeling, bog cycling. Um, and they earn £6 million from that one event alone now. People come from all over the world. I went to cover it in 2012, just before the Olympics. And there were crews from Australia, uh, America there. And they're also saying, oh, we, we come here because this is what makes Britain Britain. <laughs> this kind of event and it attracts people from all over the world to compete in as well because you can't use your hands you just have to flip it's 60 meters up 60 meters back uh, and then what really cemented this this event because it has transformed the town you know people work on this event now it's 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 the business but during the london olympics i was going on a tube journey and they had a map uh, of great britain on the, the wall going along the escalators uh -huh. all the way up the tube and it was um, saying, welcome to London 2012, welcomes the world, welcome to Great Britain. And they had a map of Britain, they had all these landmarks. They had Hadrian's Wall, they had Big Ben, they had Stonehenge, and they had one symbol for Wales. And it was a bog snorkeler. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's how big this little bizarre thing has come, become. And, and also I met this lady called Julia Galvin from Ireland, who'd had a real problem, she'd be on the verge of suicide because of her, uh, her issues of body image. She'd never swum before until she saw something on the telly about the Guinness World Records and the bog snorkeling. So the next day in private, she booked in um, swimming lessons. She learned to swim and she says it transformed her life because she then learned to swim. She then learned to compete in Irish bog snorkeling and then came over to the World Bog Snorkeling Championships and won her, her section, her category. Oh. And now she competes all around the world different events she's an ambassador it's completely saved her life it's transformed her life this thing called box knocking so that's definitely one of the most interesting the most bizarre must be worm charming which again started as a charity thing there's another story about how it transformed a young lady's life there never into sport became a world champion uh, and then went on to excel at other sports that can happen i suppose the hardest what is wow. worm, worm, what, what is so worm charming is it was invented in america it's a business over there because it's to get worms out of the ground to use as bait but in this country it was just a charity event. There's no cruelty to worms. All it is is uh, there's a, you get a square meter of earth and you have to charm as many worms out of the ground as you can in half an hour. You can't use um, physical horse. You can't tug them out and you can't use water, liquid. So the most common way is called twanging, where you put a pitchfork into the ground and you just vibrate it. And the, the people that are really good at it are trained for months. They've got the upper body arms 
perfect so they vibrated very quickly and then all the ground vibrates and that brings the worms to the surface there's one chap from mexico who built a rain simulator which uh, made the sound of water falling and that bring the worms up i saw another person on a space hopper um there was all sorts of musical uh, and actually what sophie smith did she um she broke the world record in 2009 and she played green sleeves on the recorder and her dad twanged on the pitch four. I did a joint effort. And yeah, that made the French page news of the uh, Guardian, I think it was the Telegraph and the Times. And she was on national TV and radio in America. It was the day that Michael Jackson died. So it wasn't exactly a quiet news day, <laughs> but she went on to excel at other sports because of that. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so I think the hardest would have to be probably the air racing where you're going very fast, hurting to the ground. I virtually felt so sick and passing out when you're doing that because it's on where they race these little planes. Uh, yeah. It's a bit like Formula One in the skies. And I did, even though I didn't take part in it, I didn't take control of the, the plane. Just being yeah. in that machine was just such a, a jumblement of my senses. It was, oh, physically the hardest thing I've, I've endured. But they get used to it and they train themselves to deal with those pressures. That's still going on now, the air race. It's very spectacular. And I guess, like, it shows that so that worm charming, you see, for so, for sports, I sometimes think oh, it has to be something that increases your your heart rate, is exercise and things like that. But then that just goes to show that worm charming is a sport as well, and all these different ones. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Sport, I mean, sport essentially, if you take it right back, and this was half the problem back in 2006, and why we started this whole series, is because it was narrow, it was mainstream, the average number of school sports at the time was four. And when you ask people like my daughter at the time, whoever, why don't you do sport? The main words you got back were, we're rubbish. We can't do it. People will laugh at us. Mm. It's embarrassing. I'm an embarrassment. And those, oh, they horrified me to hear those things. So I thought, well, if I can find a sport for all, go out there, see what's out there. No matter how bizarre it may seem, whether it's running with your dog, there's so many different sports out there that people are doing every weekend that you don't necessarily know about, whether it's tamborelli playing tennis with tambourines effectively a chook ball there's so many sports that are designed specifically to engage non-sporty people like what well, it was originally called rocket ball now it's known as vx it's gone professional now where there are five balls in play and it's a bit like dodgeball you find balls at each other in a in a hall uh, on a court um, but they're, they're like light tennis balls so they don't hurt but because there are five balls in play the idea is that no one gets left out everyone's playing at the same time and you've got as much chance of hitting a world champion as they've got of hitting you because there's all these balls going on at the same time but this has just opened it up so much to show there is a sport for what you're right it, the main essence of sport that we had to get back to was it's play it's essentially rolling around with your friend and playing social interaction laughing with your friend yeah. not being laughed at but laughing with your friend social interaction and just feeling involved and having a good laugh and at the same time you get a little bit fitter even with worm charming the people yeah. that train for it doing the twanging they'd get fitter but also it was the coming together of people it was the interaction the laughing with their friends and that's all part of sport and i think thankfully we've seemed to have got that back now because hopefully people feel there is a sport out there for them whether it's you know the park runs been brilliant or the couch to 5k there's so many more different ways to get it active and get involved in sport now and also have this this fun and involvement with your friends because that's all about yeah that's what it's all about it's play and i'm glad when we last did any research about 2016 average number of school sports and college sports was 18 and there's it's absolutely fantastic that you know there's so much more out there for people oh another one i've got to mention is quidditch adapted from the harry potter yeah. movie, but absolutely brilliant played there's a there's a there's now a league in this country yeah 12 teams 
and it's the most brilliant game. Most people who play it don't, have never watched Harry Potter. You don't have to be a Harry Potter fan, but it gets everyone involved again. There's the, the rugby-type game with a stick between your legs. There's the dodgeball-type game and also the tag game for the snitch to be caught to stop the game. Very unusual. After 20 minutes, the referee sends the snitch on. The winning team wants to catch the snitch because they'll end the game there. The losing team has to protect the snitch because they don't want the game to end. It's genius. And that's yeah. a really good game that's caught on. Again, it brings lots of different girls and boys, men and women together on the same team, interacting, having fun. Well, that's what I was going to say, because I remember at university, when you go around the freshers there with all the different sports, like you've got, you've got your, you know, your netball, your football, but then you've got your Quidditch and stuff like that. So I think yeah. university, I think, made me feel like there's more sports than sort of netball and hockey for girls and football and rugby for boys, you know, like you do at school. So I think it's like really interesting. How long does it take you to sort of, forward plan each Saturday for that then? Do you have to think long time in advance for your sports? Yeah, a little bit. There's um, So there's a planning team, which helps now as well. And we've got a, a great new boss who's got great ideas, Richard Frediani. He comes up with some fantastic ideas, different ways of doing things as well, and, and Claire. So we, we tend to plan some reacting to what's going on that, that particular week. So yeah. we'll do something that's quite relevant. Or like last week, we took the Euro figures, which is a brilliant idea, great fun, the cardboard cutout figures of the England team around on a tour of a school, on a boat, on a tram, just to get fans engaged because the actual team were over in Rome at the time playing yeah. for Ukraine. Um, but others will be planned more in advance. I've already started doing a few climbing and uh, Olympic preview pieces to go out in a few weeks. They're all done and cut now. Um, I was planning to do something with Josh Taylor, the boxer, after his fantastic win. Due to travel restrictions, that's been put on hold. So you, you, you do plan, have a, yeah. a vision of sort of five, six weeks ahead. In terms of actual piece by piece, once I get a piece, then hopefully I get a couple of days to, to work on it, work stuff up on it, get contacts, get interviews lined up. Um, and most importantly, think of a structure, think of my opening shot, think of the middle, think of the end, think of that clothesline with the little pegs along. So each way, all the way along, you have something to hook back the interest, hook back the interest. and to have a structure or script in my head, I won't go to sleep, even if it's two days before, until that is finally settled. Yeah. And then you can visualise it. Of course, it will then change. It'll yeah. change as the piece develops. You might suddenly find uh, that some shots are far better than you thought they were going to be and others not quite so good as you thought they were going to be. And also, it's very important to have other eyes and ears on it. So one of the editors or producers might come in and say, actually, have you thought about starting with that? And you say, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because it should be a a multi-person process it's dangerous it's just a one narrow process yeah. also there's the camera person's input the editor's input the picture editor i mean um, they might have different ideas as to what will work but to actually go in with a, a plan and a structure at first gives me that well it's easy to then control when you're actually filming it yeah. it could be much more efficient i do worry if i go into a piece not having a clue about <laughs> what i'm going to film and what we're going to talk about and and how the piece is going to flow visually in my mind yeah. The last question I wanted to ask you about sort of the sports section is, have you ever done one or sort of been filmed doing one and you're actually in your head thinking, I could break my leg right now or I'm <laughs> Yeah. Is there been a moment where you've oh, been yes. Yeah, very, very much so. So sitting on the back of Cal Crutcho's MotoGP bike, he said he would take it easy. I don't know if he did. So when we were going up the straights, I'd basically um, hang on to him. But then as he was breaking into a corner, I had to take my hands off him and push so hard on the tank to stop me flying over the top of him. Oh. And the whole way around, it was, oh, my goodness. And then as we go around corners, I did have leather trousers on. My knees would be banging on the tarmac. It didn't hurt, 
but just brushing the tarmac as they meant to do as the bike goes like that. You think we're going to fall, we're going to fall, but somehow he's a brilliant motorcyclist and MotoGP rider, so he knew the angles, he knew he was safe. And we probably obviously weren't going top speed, but it felt like we were. Similarly, sidecar racing, when sidecar is very different to the Wallace and Gromit idea of a sidecar. It's literally a tea tray. You're on the side of a bike and you're kneeling up, holding onto a, a bar, a post. Yeah. And the idea is you, you throw your weight around each corner to give your rider the most power around the corners in the race. And you're just holding on. And you hold on so tight because if you let go, you could fly off. <laughs> and having to swing around and then swing out and you're going at 150 miles an hour, that was absolutely terrifying. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness. Um, the other ones that, well, obviously I had a famous incident where I fell off a horse. Yeah, I was Went to do a piece with, yeah, the Olympic uh, show jumper, Ben Maher. Went to his stables in um, in Cambridge. And I think the problem is I've done polo pieces and arena polo and, in those pieces, the horses do a lot of the work. You, you ride them almost like a go-kart because you're concentrating on hitting the ball. That's all fine. But then a show jumping horse, a bit like a, a pedigree racehorse, a thoroughbred racehorse, not a pedigree, that's a dog, a thoroughbred horse, a racehorse. They're so highly sensitive and highly tuned to signals. And so I sat on this apparently very docile show jumping horse in this arena. And I gave it polo signals by mistake and it took off. And then I was going, whoa, whoa, trying to talk to it as if it would listen to me. And it did a couple of laps of the, um, the arena. It was a soft mulch. Luckily, Ben's uh, girlfriend stopped it from going out into the yard. Uh, and then I, di I did clear a fence and I think two metres, but not on the horse. <laughs> I just flew off like <laughs> Superman through the air and landed. And then when I landed, I thought I'd passed out because it was all dark. And I couldn't really see anything. It was a bit winded. But then I realised I could hear this. <laughs> and there were these two boxer dogs that were on top of me because they thought it was very funny. They were actually being friendly, but they sort of smothered me. So I couldn't really see much. And then I realised it was these dogs that were just playing. <laughs> and Ben Maher was on the other side of the arena. He couldn't stand up for laughing. <laughs> but I was, I was fine. Did no damage done. Good. Have you ever done Soapbox? The Soapbox? Yes, I have. Oh, that's superb. I always love watching it. I did it in Board and Whitehill. Yeah, it's fantastic. I went down in a couple, oh my goodness, once on my own and once with other people in. Done it a few times, actually. It's, what's so, so good about that is I've done one where they inspire the kids to build them themselves, like scout yeah. groups, guy groups, and they build their own over months and then they get to race them down this course. And then there's obviously the extreme one in London at Ali Pali. Yeah, I have done it for a few years, but it's a great event, usually spring bank holiday, isn't it? And really competitive, and some end up in complete smithereens scattered yeah. across the course. <laughs> it's interesting to see the ones that win. It's a brilliant, brilliant event, that. Yeah, they seem to be on sort of, well, on TV around Christmas time, and I always yeah. love watching them because just the way it all falls apart and they're still going on just a tiny little TV. That's right. <laughs> and the costumes, and it's all about, it's great a way of getting youngsters into engineering. Um, yeah. Come thinking about what's going to be the most aerodynamic, but also do you go for weight or do you go for lightness? Do you go for how you're going to ballast it? What's your design going to be? Is it going to be too much resistance if you have too much of a cabin? <laughs> yeah, um, that's fantastic. And how do you how did you feel or how do you feel when you're sort of live on air? Do you do you get nervous or are you fine? I mean, you always seem very comfortable and confident and relaxed, but what's going on yeah. sort of internally? Well, it's excitement. Definitely, it's trying to rein the excitement in. Yeah. Um, especially when you're, you're telling Nagar and Charlie or whoever it is something you're, you're introducing, trying to entice them in and the audience, so you're trying to sound excited but not get too carried away. 
There's a little bit of nervous energy, I guess, because you don't want to fluffy lines. Because a lot of it is ad-libbing around the script. Then you do have a script. You want to make the script as well sound not too read and rehearsed as if you're just reading out of a book. And so you try not to make it boring. Um, so, yeah. And then it's, yeah, you just want to make sure you concentrate on And then also reacting to the pictures, watching the pictures at the same time as reading, when you are reading. So you're in time with them. But it's about being prepared again as well. And then outside broadcasts are different because you don't have a... An autocue as such, you have a, I have an iPad, the main scripts on for when we're on pictures, but usually the first item, the end item is all ad-libbed and, and you just do it as if you're in the pub or the park or the shop telling a friend, yeah. um, rather than the audience and Nagra and Charlie back in the studio. It's just as if you're telling, getting excited and telling a friend about something and just trying to explain it, whatever it may be, wherever you are, set the scene, set the excitement, because it's the, the first person really at the venue whether it be Wembley or Wimbledon you're the first person there there's a big day ahead whatever it may be and you're trying to get the excitement going and, and tell it why it means so much and with your lives and your outside broadcasts we can't I'm laughing just thinking about it, but we can't forget <laughs> the time you fell in the swimming pool yes at the Commonwealth Games in Australia and the famous line beforehand where he said I've got to be careful I've got to be careful yeah. How, how was the atmosphere sort of there? Because we were all so obviously sorry. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was. It was all going so swimmingly as well. <laughs> it was. Um, we were we had a brilliant setup at the Commonwealth Games. It was down on the beach. You had a studio. Well, not a studio. It was just literally the beach, and sand, and the athletes would come to you after they'd won medals, and you'd interview them, and it'd be live on breakfast from six in the morning to. 10 in the morning or nine in the morning in the UK in the, in the um, Australian time, it was three in the afternoon to six, seven in the, in the evening. And so we were waiting to go live at half past three, half past six UK time. And so we had a phone call saying the swimmers are stuck in traffic. They're going to go to a swimming pool instead. Can you and the cameraman and his live links box that can enable us to go live. Can you get up to the swimming pool? So we picked a lot of stuff. I carried the tripod and the link box. He had his camera and we ran about a mile mm -hmm. up the beach and then up this road and we got into this hotel swimming pool, which was all laid out. One end, there was holidaymakers. Yeah. And the other end was Hazel Irvine from BBC Sport and about six of her crew. And they were doing a recorded interview with the, the swimmers for BBC One, for BBC Sport. So I was told, go to that, the other side of the pool and start your broadcast and breakfast, because by this point we had about a minute oh, to wow. go. Um, and so... The first story was Liverpool football. So I quickly took my trousers off, had my shorts on prepared because I thought Hazel's sitting with her feet in the pool. Yeah, and in that because there was two pools. There was the main pool where people were swimming and there was a little children's pool, it looked like just to the side, and they were sitting around the edge, and Hazel was sitting with them around the edge of this small pool. And so I started the breakfast sport from a sunbed on the other side of the pool, talking about the football, and Charlie commented that finally I've got my shorts on. <laughs> and it was all going swimming. Then we went to stories where there were pictures so I could move during those stories so I was reading about football, Liverpool, Manchester City, rugby, cricket, um, getting to the Commonwealth Games and all the time it was on my iPad the script and the pictures were being played so you couldn't see me I was moving around the pool mm -hmm. and I got to the last story and I it was about table tennis so I'm the young table tennis player from Wales so I started reading this it was about 30 seconds of pictures I tapped Hazel on the shoulder and just beckoned for her to move out of the way. And she realised that we were going to go live, so she got up and Julie obliged. The big difference was their system was they all had a microphone each. 
So they had her microphone and then the athletes all had four microphones between them. Um, I just had the one, the one I was broadcasting into for me. And we had the, just the one cameraman, Rash. And so I realised the only way I was going to talk to all of them was to move along them because Hazel didn't have to because they all had their own microphones, but they weren't compatible with our camera because we were going live and they were recording. So I literally, Hazel moved out of the way, came to the end of the table tennis read and then looked at them all and said, remember their names, remember that what they'd won. And so congratulations, Adam, blah, 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 Sarah, blah, blah, blah. Remembered all that. Very proud of myself remembering all that after doing the rest of the bulletin. And then got into the pool onto the waves shallow, it seemed, and started asking the first question. Um, and then realised I was a bit close to Sarah, so I just moved slightly to my right. And that's when, as I put my right foot down, there was nothing there. And then I just remember going diagonally, horizontally, very slowly into the water. And I had said, yes, I've got to be careful here because I had the mic back on, but I did not at any point look at the contour of the pool. I didn't look at the depth that there was actually a ledge, quite unusual having a children's pool, that no. there was a ledge and then, and then a deep bit. <laughs> so I went all the way and then eventually managed to touch, touch the bottom and sprang back up. It wasn't actually that deep. It was probably up to here. And then sprang back up onto the ledge and tried to carry on and had to literally get between Sarah's legs at that point. But she was laughing and the whole, the rest of the crew were laughing all around me. The, the BBC sport crew and Hazel, they're on the floor. Rash was the only other person standing. The rest of the people just on the floor holding their ribs, laughing so much. And the other end of the pool, all the holidaymakers were doing the same as well. Tried to carry on, but as you know, famously, the, the bike pack did give up. And so then they went to the weather. Um, back in Salford, the producer at the time was hopping mad I think what has just happened oh my god this is so embarrassing what's happening came out of the studio out of the gallery and one of the producers said hold on have you seen the social media reaction to this already and it was going the bonkers people thankfully loving it because the swimmers had loved it I think that helped me get out of jail here because they thought it was so funny so they went to the weather came back from the weather and by then we'd borrowed from Hazel Irvine one of these big long uh, cable mics so we could actually just plug into the camera no danger of that being affected and we were able to do the full interview with all the people and got it done phew a relief <laughs> then we went back to the beach to do the next hour's broadcast from there um, with some boxes I think it was and the security guard on the beach Australian he just said hey mate I've just seen <laughs> I've just seen you on Australian television have you seen what's happening on the internet you're all over Twitter mate <laughs> and then already this is like 20 minutes later wow. I started to realize how big it was and then the rest of the day was incredible the phone didn't stop from tv stations in china um uruguay uganda just three to spring to mind greg james at radio one yeah had to go on there and just talk about it and just, as we're doing now and then a year later i was on holiday in manzarotti and the phone rang at seven in the morning it was greg james again saying do you I'm like, do you know it's a year since you've been the pool? I said, no, we'd like to do it, um, an anniversary thing today. Where are you? So actually, I am by a pool. He said, you're by a pool? Yes, on holiday in Lanzarote. <laughs> so I had to fall in again, <laughs> live on Radio 1. But that was deliberate that time. It was just to re recreate the moment, as it were. <laughs> that, that was, uh, it was just so funny, but <laughs> I'm glad everyone else found it funny as well and that you took it yeah. in your stride. Um, so then we'll go to Strictly. So you, you did Strictly oh, yes. 2019 with Katia Jones. What, mm -hmm. what was the experience like? I mean, I, you, told, you told me a, a few weeks ago that it was really tough training and really hard work. Well, not hard work, but you had to work hard. Yeah. So what was it like? 
yeah, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of physically and mentally, I think, as well. They, they ease you in very gently. So you do the group work first, the group number in middle of August, I think it was, and you get really excited and there's all the glitz and the glamour and it's so big, the production's so big on it, you feel, wow, this is so special. And then after the launch night, you get paired up. That's when the real hard work starts. Then you go into a, a room somewhere, locked away with your dance teacher. Cathy Jones was absolutely brilliant, but known for being a hard disciplinarian, pushes you as hard as you can gets the maximum out of you. She'll tell you things at the start of the week that you don't think will be possible, but by Thursday, you're realising they are. And then, oh my goodness, the first two weeks are definitely the hardest. They give you, thankfully, two weeks to learn the first dance because of what your body goes through. I mean, I've done so many pieces on different sports, but I think dancers are probably the ultimate athletes along with boxers because of the physical toughness. They're so robust. They can fall. They can take knocks. It doesn't affect them because they're so physically lean, mean machines they are. And plus add in the mental side to music, doing it so fast, the memory. So mentally and physically, absolutely ultimate athletes. And so you have to become one of them. You, the first few days, your legs, your feet, the soles of the feet, I was doing the jive. I didn't know that I could get so sore right underneath. And so you're walking down the stairs the next morning. Ah, it's like walking on hot coals. Everything's stinging. Then there's the carbs. So that was the first week, the jive. So you're doing from 7.30 in the morning with meats, have something to eat and then go through a bit of lunch, get through to five o'clock, have another little break, and then we'd probably go to nine, 10 at night. She'd be, I think we're finished. Oh, just finished for the day. Let's say, let's go around the room four more times. And, uh, mentally, you think, oh no. <laughs> and then you go home, have a quick bite to eat, go to bed, and you're up again. And amazing experience, but you let those four days, it's like being in this tunnel, yeah. being shouted at as well. I needed shouted at, being physically Man manipulated and pushed but yeah. I need that you need that because then if you're not ready I mean this is the typical week but there are other things to throw into the mix like going to London for it takes two going to London for if you're using a special prop like I came down the, the longest pole in strict history you had to go and rehearse that on Thursday so sometimes you get three days with mm. your partner on your own some of that might be in London some of it might be near where you live but you need all that work because come Thursday evening you've got to be ready because then Friday, weirdly, Friday is this sort of more relaxed day because you go up to the studios, you see everyone for the first time again. Hey, great to see everybody. Because you come so close, but then you don't see them the rest of the week. Friday, you have, I think it's three or four run-throughs mm -hmm. on the dance floor. First of all, blocking it out. And then you start doing it to music. Uh, and that's when other people start to have a look at it as well. And sometimes you get quite nerve-wracking. So it's nerve-wracking on Friday, but you only get three or four run-throughs. So physically, it's not as demanding. And then you have the costume fittings. You have all the social media stuff that you have to do, the interviews. And Friday used to be a great day, but then all the time you're thinking, ah, Saturday tomorrow. Ah, that's when the nerves really kick in. So Saturday morning, you get up, you get in there, depending on your call time, you have a couple of run-throughs. I think to the live band that day, if I'm right. Yeah. And then you have your dress rehearsal in the afternoon when you're told the judges do actually watch from their dressing rooms on a TV. So you don't want to get the dress rehearsal wrong either. And then there's a couple of hours to have some dinner, get prepared, do your little routines, get hair and makeup done. And, and then the moments that you're counting down, you know where you are in the running order. And you're just taking deep breaths, watching the others cheering the others on until it's your turn to go backstage, two dances before, final run through behind all the setting and behind the scenes when there's hardly any space. We try and do one little last run through with Katia and then you get into position and then the announcement comes on and 
lights, camera, action, and you just have to then just hope, hope, hope you've done enough because people talk that everyone has brain freezes and suddenly mm. at that moment it all goes out your mind. But you just hope that when you put that first foot down and the first beat strikes that it's automatic. Yeah. I th- and Cassie was really good at getting getting us to that stage each week so at least we knew I could still make mistakes but still you knew what you had to do yeah you see three days or four days is actually really hard to learn a dance because I've danced since I was three and that's just I know it'd be very intense and it's sort of for those four days it'd be all you sort of focus on but I can just imagine that that's tough for anyone like even a dancer yeah three days so yeah oh it is yeah especially when um when you see the thing at the beginning of the week you're thinking and it's got obviously difficult moves in the second dance we did the American smooth had all these lifts wow. not exactly the biggest upper body and doing these lifts my neck was aching had to throw catty around and she'd say stand there and suddenly she'd do a like a somersault and land up on my shoulders and had to flick her up oh. and suddenly she was up there and then had to swing around like a lasso and then catch her without dropping her, her head down there yeah. and that was mind-boggling on the second day we were doing that that's before you've even started putting the whole dance to music. And then suddenly, Katia will put on the music. And after about three seconds, you're totally left behind. Thinking, well, what's next? Oh, hold on. The, we're on that bit. And the dance has ended. You're yeah. still like five, five seconds in trying to remember it. And so, yeah, Tuesday and Wednesday, it was like that. By the end of Monday, you try and block it out. You, you go to bed trying to remember it all. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, you're putting the music on. But you just, every time, you're way, way behind and just losing it after about seven seconds. And, oh, that was what was coming next, but it's just so fast. But gradually, the more times you do it, the more times you do it. Katia was quite good. She'd sometimes slow the music down like by 50% and then start speeding up to 17 and 18 and 19 and 100. But oh my goodness, yeah. Sometimes, well, the Thursday was of the American Smooth. I was still dropping her. She, oh. she, I'd try that move and be, the, the pyramid that I had to get with her on top would just collapse. And we'd be falling over, she'd be falling to the floor. And that was on the Thursday. I mean, it wasn't our best dance in the end. <laughs> we only got really quite low score, but at least in the actual dance on the night, we didn't drop anyone. I didn't drop her. <laughs> that was always main. Bruno said that he thought I might. He was worried it was like some sort of psychotic murder scene, but um, thankfully that was all right. But yeah, you're right. Three days is it's not long and it's so quick. It's so and intense then, and the memory. Right, next week next dance forget yeah. that one. don't need to end yeah. next exactly like, yeah realize about that but the, the professionals after the saturday night euphoria you've got through woohoo it's about 11 o'clock on a saturday night you can just breathe a sigh of relief ah but then sunday morning the professionals are up catch will be on her own um devising the next week's dance mapping it out in her head writing yeah. it down yeah sorry what are you gonna say i was gonna ask you what your favorite dance was that you did oh well, actually, it was it definitely, well, actually, the favourite dance was Charleston because yeah. it was so much fun and there's a lot of, but I got a bit carried away in that. I did make a mistake. I, I rectified it in the dance-off, but I heard Motsi whooping at this one move and then took my eye off the ball for a split second and that caused me to miss the next swivel. But I learned to swivel. I can still swivel yeah. for the Charleston. It was just so goofy. But the favourite dance has to be the quick step yeah. in terms of experience because it was so bad. I'd had a bit of man flu that week. I'd fallen over in training, collapsed, hadn't quite cried. I was the only dancer to be with Katia that didn't actually cry. Um, but I could have cried if I wanted, but, and um, yeah, it was going so badly wrong. On Tuesday night, she was going to send me home at five. I said, no, we've got to continue. We've got to break this. And then thankfully by Tuesday night, we did break it and managed to get through it. Wednesday was terrible. Thursday, I had a mental block of this one step. It was 12 steps in and it was a, a shuffle, shuffle, hop, hop, jump step something like that anyway 
And I couldn't do it. It became a mental block. Katia almost gave up. She walked out. She was, she couldn't understand why it's become such a mental block. We started doing it in the local village hall and a couple of producers came down to watch. And I think they were worried. It came to the dress rehearsal. And because the quick step is, it was come on Eileen, the quick step so quick. It was like, if you made one mistake, the next 10, 12, it would all fall apart and it would look horrendous. And that's exactly what happened in the dress rehearsal. Uh, mentally, I was thinking about this step. Mm. A few times before backstage, it had gone okay. I managed to do it. But it came to this one step. It was like a, a big fence in a show jumping ring for a horse. And I got up, up to it in um, the dress rehearsal and it went horribly wrong. And then the next 30 seconds, the dance all over the place, steps all over the place. I was trying to catch up. I couldn't get back into the rhythm. And I came off and all the other professionals, you know, when people are being kind, but they, they're dead and saying, oh, oh, okay. Don't worry, it's only the dress rehearsal. Katia was fuming. She couldn't really speak to me. She had to go and have some time. I had to go and have some time. It's, it was oh, horrendous. It was, yeah. And then that few hours waiting for the actual dance. And then came to the night. And I remember thinking it was like slow motion. I was counting the steps down to that 12th step. They're coming up to it. And then the foot went out and it landed. And it was like a horse clearing a fence. And from that moment, the relief surged through the rest of the dance, through the rest of the body. The rest of the dance was the best we'd ever done it. Yeah. We got, got to the end. Everything had just gone, wow. Katia cried, she collapsed in tears. We got amazing comments, we got top marks. We were up, you know, third, I think, on the leaderboard or something like that. We catapulted right up the leaderboard. It all clicked into place just when it mattered on the actual, the actual dance. And so that was probably the best feeling. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it went from zero, it literally went from zero to 10 out of 10 in just that. And it was all that down to that one step. Yeah, was that your highest score? Yes, it was. It was only 32, but it was still quite good. So good, yeah. We got, a, I think we got a nine from Motsi, so that was, yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. And a seven from Craig, I think it was. <laughs> I wanted to ask, sort of, logistically how it happens, because I'm. this is probably the, the geeky side of me, when there's all the cameras, and obviously the camera will go to you at the right time to look in the Charleston or something, how... Are there, are, there, are there many cameras sort of around the um, dance yeah. room at the time? How do you know and how do they know where to look? Is it just practice? Yes. So it's, it's a massive production. It's the most incredible show I've worked on in terms of the production and the resources. So, yes, that you on the, I think that's what we do on the Friday. You block it out. And so you'll do it a couple of times and you'll, the light will come on a particular camera. It's all dark, but you do see lights on. You'll be told to look somewhere for one particular dance step look over there there is a cameraman on the floor as well running around one of these steady cams but yeah you, you just block it out and map it out as best you can on the friday and then go for it on the saturday as well but i wouldn't say that yeah that's probably not the hardest thing for the actual couples because they make it so easy for us because there are so many cameras and they're on cranes the people sat with the cameras the people cameras around their waists and so they are really well manned and there's a director and as long as you, there's only a couple of times you'll have to look into a certain camera or do something at a certain camera, usually. And, and that comes after all the dance steps you learn. That's quite easy. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So, um, so like that, that, as you said, was probably the hardest thing you've done, like challenging thing. What do you do sort of to switch off and like relax and for leisure? Oh, what now? So, well, yeah. we've got a lovely dog. 
so yeah hunter the the springer door likes his big walk so in the morning if i'm off probably be a 10k or a 5k walk with, with the dog love swimming um especially open water swimming so get down to the sea whenever i can in manchester there's formby going to see off there Do you? Or down south there's yeah it's you lovely or formby yeah yeah in a yeah, way take the paddle boarding no 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 it's gorgeous it's very warm to see off formby um it's probably warmer than the south coast beach because i think the sand keeps it quite shallow and it's quite it warms up on the sand Isn't that a lot of so paddle take take the paddle paddleboard out sorry say again <laughs> there's not a lot of jellyfish because when I've there are there are jellyfish but I've managed to avoid them so far but you can see them um and most of them aren't dangerous I don't think I don't know I have to look up my jellyfish yeah but it down yeah down in um sort of Hampshire or Dorset yeah you've got the other beaches down there so I try and do that get my monthly fix in the sea paddle boarding is a great passion because you can take it on a lake a river anywhere really um and that's it really and play five side football a bit of tennis sometimes all great ways to relax yeah. And just to finish off the podcast, we need to talk about Sunday's final, the year. Oh. Um, what's your prediction? Is it is, is football coming home, Mike? <laughs> or is it going to Rome? It's so hard to call this one because of the journeys the teams have been on. Italy, probably for most of this tournament, have been the best team in the tournament. They're attacking football. They've been incredible. The defence what is it they're unbeaten run 33 matches now it's insane they are the form team they are but but have they have they peaked because against spain maybe there were signs that they couldn't keep it up for the whole 90 minutes i know it went to extra time penalties but spain if they'd taken their chances would have beaten them and england have grown in energy stature the togetherness they love the crowd and against Denmark, one of the most impressive things was, was their relentless running. OK, they let Denmark get on a bit in the, the first half, but second half and extra time, they were all over the Danes. The Danes couldn't cope, they couldn't keep up. That's why they only ended with 10 men on the pitch. Just, they were falling. Um, Calvin Phillips ran 15 kilometres. Wow. Sterling, Ram Sterling was still running and running at the defence at the end. Mm. And that could trouble the Italians. A couple of them are getting on a bit, the Italians. On paper, probably... Italy, you'd have to say 60-40 in terms of player for player, but I, I don't know now. The more I think about it, the more you analyse it, you think England could, could do this. They could carry that energy, that relentlessness. The defence is so tight. They, they've got a plan now. They can match Italy and maybe they can wear the Italians down and get an extra time win. I'm usually quite pessimistic when it comes to football. But mm. oh, this one, I'd I'm completely split. I'm going to have to say, in the end, I mean, it could even come down to penalties and two great goalkeepers then. Oh. But England, yeah, I'm going to say it, they could, they can do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> tentatively. Yeah. We'll, we'll put one foot in, it's coming home, and we'll put one foot in. It's going to Rome. It's going to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you. you. You all heard it here first, the predictions for Sunday. So I just wanted to thank you for coming on today and chatting. It's been really interesting to find out more about you and sort of what you've been up to. Oh, I love it. I love it, chatting. It's, it's great and a great podcast. And thanks for getting me involved. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.